In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. I'm your host, Kimberly Lewis, and this series is in cooperation with the Cinda Academy, which brings together leaders and businesses from all over the world to discuss topics that are interesting to you and your business. And today we're going to be talking about the current crisis, what the current crisis has given to us, and how artificial intelligence has the chance to prove itself during this crisis. Now, before I start, I'd like to welcome our listeners, and we do also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to this series, let me tell you what this series is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact globalization, digital transition, and the connected world is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence and data protection regulations to leadership issues such as gender balance, generational management, and business values that may impact your organization or your individual career. So please download this series on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. Listen to us live 3 p.m. specific times. When you listen to us, you can get great advice leadership success stories that you can learn from, stories that can motivate you, stimulate new ideas, and possibly even be the key to your success. Now, all the subjects we talk about here also are reflected on www.cinda.org. This podcast is on that website. And also, there could be complimentary webinars to look at. And there is a complimentary webinar for today's subject subject. So I invite you to look at that. And I invite you to send me some emails at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Let me know what you want to hear about. I'd love to hear from you. So please send me an email. And if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week and we will make sure that you take away something useful for either your business or yourself. Now, And to today's episode, as the world reaches COVID-19 exhaustion, we all realize that this crisis has already changed our daily lives. And very often, we do not recognize what else the crisis has changed, including impacts on global opinions, surrounding politics, the environment, and the technology. Our attitudes towards the potential opportunities and risk of using data and artificial intelligence to combat COVID-19 are varied. But there are many examples regarding use of data and AI-based technologies to combat the virus and the spread of the epidemic. But these examples illustrate the potential of data and AI to combat this invisible enemy through diagnoses, tracking, testing, monitoring, and anticipating its progression. However, many of these deployments of AI remain experimental and limited, and many of them include the accumulation of personal data. So as AI has the capacity to help us save lives, how much attention are we paying to the wider social, economic, cultural, and political context? In this episode today, we're going to be talking about that, and we're going to be exploring this with two experts in the field of AI and data. Simon Greenman and Tim Gordon are co-founders and partners at Best Practice AI. Simon has more than 20 years of experience leading digital transformations through technology, data science, and AI in the local media space. Previously, he was a co-founder of MapQuest, one of the first internet local brands, and he spent over 10 years as chief digital officer leading transformations of U.S. and European directory companies for private equity. And he has also worked as a consultant in many fields. Simon is highly active in the AI startup community. He's a co-president of the Harvard Business School Alumni Angels in London and an advisor and former venture partner at DA Capital and AI expert in resident at C Camp. 
Tim, Tim has over 20 years international experience in growing businesses and digital data transformation in the media, financial services, and consumer non-for-profit camp- uh, space. He has served in senior roles at companies including Financial Times, the Boston Consulting Group, and in private equity-backed businesses, and was the chief executive of the Liberal Democrats. He introduced machine learning for key businesses, and Tim has advised startup entrepreneurs all over the world. He studied at Cambridge University and holds an MA from the College of Europe, MBA from INSEED. So welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hi, pleasure Hi, to be, to be here. here. Um, so, Simon, let's start out with you. You just uh, you just did a paper for the Economic Forum on AI and data. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Pleasure. Yeah, I sit on the, the World Economics Forum's um, Global AI Council, which is really the group looking at how do we make sure these new technologies such as AI are used responsibly and ethically across the world. And sort of in the context of COVID-19, there's a big question mark is, can governments be trusted to use AI and personal data in an effective and safe and trustworthy way? And it really is, it's, it's an interesting question because you look around the world in countries such as South Korea and others it, that um, AI is being used for activities we might consider surveillance activities, for example, contact tracing. Um, if your phone comes in, is close to my phone and you're diagnosed with COVID-19, I should be notified. But the, the, the ability to do that sort of notification um, and contact tracing is dependent upon having personal data. And there's a big question mark as to whether or not we as citizens really trust that our personal and sensitive data would be used in a sort of trustworthy and safe way by our governments. And it's very much, it's a question and attitudes that change across the globe. Um, And we'll discuss more of that later, but certainly in Asia, that has seen a lot of challenges in the past from SARS and MERS pandemics, there seems to be more of a a trust in the government to actually use their personal mobile location data to help actually manage the spread of um, COVID-19. So when we talk about managing this spread, okay, there's a lot of things going on. And um, I mean, there's so many different things going on at different country levels. Um, Have you touched on that in your paper, Simon? And why is there so many different um, ways to try to manage this? Yeah, I mean, the the response rates... um, and the management tactics of governments seem to vary widely. And they sort of, if we look across North America versus Europe versus certain Asian countries, there's definitely different approaches. And it's sort of borne out in, in the rather grim reality of the mortality figures. So, you know, if we look at the, the big European countries, such as the UK, Spain, Spain France, Italy, um, then death numbers today are numbering around the 25 to 30,000 mark. And then obviously, sadly, in the U.S., we're seeing it go well north of 70,000 at this point. And these, these are big numbers. But then we look at the Asian countries, um, look at China that's reporting just over 4,500 deaths um, for a population that's 20 times the size of the United Kingdom. And then we look at South Korea that's reporting 255 deaths from COVID-19. And then we look at Singapore at 20 and Hong Kong at four and Taiwan. There's clearly a huge range of numbers here. And so that sort of begs the question of why is there such a range of uh, diversity? And what is it that the countries are actually doing differently in their strategies to combat this, um, mm-hmm. to, to be able to um, get to such different results? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Tim, I'm going to come to, to you with that question because you've um, been very active in, in government. And so why do you think there, there's such a, a big difference on these approaches? And, and is that what's making the difference in these numbers? Well, it's obviously the million, the, the multi-billion dollar question at the moment, Kimberly. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say, firstly, there's still a lot we don't know. So we're still learning a lot about 
different impact on different uh, different groups of people. You know, there's a stu- there's a study in the Economist last week suggesting that actually if you smoked, it made you less likely to get sick. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of quite surprising questions that are coming out of the data at the moment. If then you look at the governments, I think there's two very clear differentiating factors you can see. Firstly, there are a whole bunch of governments who. Uh, just weren't ready for this. Their eyes were elsewhere. In the UK, we were focused on Brexit. In the US, you've been focused on a bunch of stuff, whereas some other countries were clearly watching this closely and ready to move very quickly. So countries like Taiwan basically spend a lot of their time watching what happens in China. The moment something moves in China, they're aware of it and they're prepared to act and respond very quickly. And then secondly, a lot of governments have plans in place, but it depends what they're planning for. So places like Taiwan and Singapore and South Korea and China were sort of prepared for, you know, the next version of SARS. And they they planned for that. And that was in some ways a disease far closer to COVID-19 than other diseases. Whereas other countries like the UK, definitely probably the US, were planning for a global flu pandemic. And actually, some very different uh, factors that come out of that. So many of our initial hypotheses and initial moves uh, when we we're ready for flu turned out to be the wrong ones. And I think a lot of that is going to come out uh, as we look forward. Mm-hmm. And how much do you think, and I'll, I'll throw this out to whoever wants to, how much do you think um, cultural habits have played in this? Okay. Um, if you think about the cultural habits between, between um, you know, Italy with kind of three kisses and France and stuff like that, and maybe a little bit more distancing in Scandinavia or Germany, how much do you think that played a role in it? So yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's 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 a really good question. I mean, at the the end of the day, what is is very clear is that distancing and isolation and quarantining are, are absolutely key to being able to keep the numbers um, of, of the spread down. And so, I think it's it's fair to ask that question: that does culture matter here? That the sort of more tactile Italians and French and, and, and Spanish. Um, where the the, the COVID nineteen took off very quickly, was that a factor versus countries like Germany, which might be less tactile in nature? We don't know the answer, but I think it is going to be a, a, an important question to look at when we have a chance to review all of this. Mm-hmm. And if I may come, I think the difference, the cultural difference, is going to be probably around mask usage and data acceptance. So although the sort of the you know the traditions of the the, the friendly Italians and the somewhat colder Brits or Germans. Uh, may on the margins make a difference. The big difference thing is going to be in societies, typically East Asian societies, where you know wearing masks is something everyone moved to very early on in this pro- in this process. That will be seen through the big cultural difference. Mm-hmm. And Tim, what about technology? I mean, if you think about you know countries like Israel have some of the lowest numbers and and they're very technology technology advanced. What what about that? I think that's been a critical part of the approach. But I think uh, at this stage in the process, a lot of the technology is sort of being talked about and it's a sort of uh, exciting thing to focus on. The reality, though, is the societies that are structured and organized around very close tie-ins on people, in many ways, the technology becomes a benefit to that rather than the main driver. So if you look at China, they had widespread deployment of, for example, um, uh, thermometers to check people's temperatures. And that's great. And that's technology of some sort. But the really important thing is you had lots and lots of people whose job was to go around checking people's temperature. So it's how you deploy the technology as much as the technology itself. Okay, good. So... Simon, did you want to make a comment on that? Yeah, and to, and to add to that, I mean, the, the example from Israel, if you, if you read the media, is is they, if you were a citizen, um, there's been a few cases that you'd go home or you're, you're out and about and you'd actually get a personalized text message that said, Dear Simon, um, you have been in close contact with somebody with COVID-19. We're going to ask you to quarantine there. So the, the sort of the track and tracing capabilities um, have been implemented in Israel. And it's got a very sophisticated technological infrastructure that allows for tracking of individuals here. But I think that the question there is a lot of people were really surprised. I didn't opt into this. I, I didn't say you could use my data. And so it's actually been a sort of very political issue in, in, in the parliament there that the, the data was being used about my location to do contact tracing without me actually asking for it. But at the same time, you look at the numbers in terms of deaths at this point in Israel, and that they're relatively low at around 240 today. So technology does seem to have played a big role there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'd like to 
talk about that because I know that you both in your in your practice had recognized five areas that have made the difference in in managing this and I'd like to talk about those five areas and the technology that that's supporting it when we get back from the break and for our listeners we are speaking with Simon Greenman and Tim Gordon and they are the co-founders and partners and they are both partners at Best Practice AI that is a London-based AI executive advisory firm that helps companies accelerate their AI solutions and Simon has more than 20 years of experience leading digital transformations through technology, data science, and AI. And Tim has over 20 years international leadership experience in growing businesses. Now, if you want to reach out to them, you can reach out to their company on www.bestpractice.ai. And if you'd reach, like to reach out to Simon, you can reach out to Simon Greenman on Instagram. And on Twitter, he is under Greenman and on Medium under S. Greenman. And if you'd like to reach out to Tim personally, you can reach out to him on Medium under at Tim23050 and on LinkedIn under Tim-Gordon135 one three five one AA. And if you have questions, you can send comments or questions to me, Kimberly Lewis, at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. And this broadcast is also brought to you by the Cinder Academy, one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search association. Cinder holds digital conferences in Europe, and the Cinder Academy is available 24 hours a day under www.cinder.org. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, Decide that you have something to say and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. Your leadership journey must be a continuous process of education and improvement. If you think you've learned all you need to know, think again. Find out the latest from contemporary authors on topics from character to values and everything in between. Discover insights into servant leader fundamentals along with your host, Tom Crea. Tune into Your Evolving Leadership Journey, Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders, and today we're speaking with Simon Greenman and Tim Gordon, and they are co-founders of Best Practice AI, a London-based AI executive advisory company that helps companies accelerate their AI solutions. And we're talking today about, uh, you know, what's going on in this crisis with COVID-19 and also how technology and, and data is helping us track this virus and helping us try to understand it better. Now, um, 
what, before the break, we, we kind of talked about the general situation that going on right now. Um, but Simon, I'll start out with you. Um, you, you in your paper or both you and Tim in, in your practice recognize five areas that are contributing to the control of the spread. And what are those areas? Yeah, bro- I mean, broadly, there, there seems to be five different areas that determine really the effectiveness of strategies to be able to actually contain and suppress and manage COVID-19. And you know, you, we can quibble exactly about the categories, but broadly, what we see is number one is is the responsiveness and the agility of, of a government to respond quickly. Um, and the second area is testing. And, and you'd hear all the experts say we need to test, test, test. So how much testing is going on within a country? And the sort of the third area is really the use of technology for areas such as contact tracing, which is so important to do track and tracing. When somebody gets uh, COVID-19, can governments quickly identify and quarantine all the people that have, they've come into that might also have, um, have got COVID-19? And then the strategy becomes isolation, which is sort of distancing and quarantine. And obviously, around the world, we've seen lots of lockdowns. And I think that there's the numbers were something like 4 billion of the 7 billion on this planet have been locked down. And then the final area that seems to have an important impact on the spread and containment is the use of masks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let, let's take a look at those areas. And Tim, let me start with you on this um, responsiveness. Okay. Um, how important is which countries responded quickly? Were there some examples of good examples or slow examples? Um, and what are you what are you seeing behind this well, I think there are, there are two groups who seem to have responded quickly. First, you know, the countries who were sort of actually up close next to China. So Taiwan, uh, despite having, you know, historically very close ties to Wuhan, lots of sort of business travel between the two, spotted what was happening relatively early on and slammed on the brakes in terms of sort of uh, limiting travel and then sort of moving very quickly to their sort of their, their medical toolkit in terms of the various approaches they took in society. And that ranged from... Uh, tracking and tracing very aggressively, uh, really making sure that the technology was deployed and society was deployed to pin down every possible uh, potential source of disease and move as quick as possible to isolate those people and really close things down. And so there's places like uh, that's Taiwan that did that immediately and South Korea that did a really good job despite a quite large outbreak around a sort of a, a religious um, a religious community of really moving to, to close those close those things down and keep them contained and you look at what happened in Europe where actually countries like the UK started off doing quite a good job in terms of track and trace but it, quite quickly it, it began to spiral out of control and once it got out of control people were just chasing their chasing their tail to catch up then a second wave of countries who've done well, places like New Zealand, where basically they could see it coming a while off, they could close their borders, and they've done a really good job once again of shutting things down and making sure they're protected about what's coming at them. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and Tim, staying with you, what about testing? Okay, because part of this responsiveness has to do with te- testing, and we've seen we've seen countries with lack of tests. We've seen um, technology, some great technology in testing. What are you seeing out there um, in technology that s- supports the testing? Well, I think the technology has been great at helping people work out where to deploy the testing. So to begin with, the testing numbers weren't necessarily massive. So you start off with a few tens of thousands in sort of somewhere like uh, Taiwan or South Korea, which at the time felt like a lot compared with the US or the UK. But you know, it, it compared to the numbers that say the US or the UK are generating now are actually quite small. But because they could use technology to triage and work out where should they focus this, they're able to use their testing to get that situational awareness to be ahead of the curve. Whereas places like the US and the UK now where we're behind the curve actually you need far greater volumes of testing to get to the right sort of place now what's happening at the moment with testing is there's endless tests being rolled out different places and some really interesting places are happening so for example Senegal uh, not a place you'd associate with high technology is, is rolling out very cheap testing at great speed so there's some very interesting things happening out there Mm-hmm. And and with this, I've, uh, well, isn't there a country that was doing testing actually with booths that you could walk into or something like that, that I read uh, to either of you? Yeah, so quite a lot of the countries are doing sort of seven-minute tests. I think, uh, tell me wrong here, Simon, but it was, it was either Taiwan or South Korea. And you got to a place where people could walk in, get tested on the spot, and, and if you know what's happening and you know at that moment you, you, you're sick or not sick, that's so much more important than waiting three or four days, which is what we were doing in the U.S. and the U.K. early on in this crisis. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, okay. that, was, that was on South Korea, sitting in almost the phone booths where you could walk into, and it was very accessible. So one of the key issues is, is getting enough testing and getting people to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, once we get this testing, the other area that you talked about is surveillance. And this is this is where this is where the data and the AI come together. So, um, Simon, start with you. What's going on in the area of sur- surveillance right now? Yeah. And it's, it's really if we look to, to the Asian countries, China, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, that's where the best examples of how digital technologies, AI and personal data are being used for surveillance to help manage this. And, and, and probably the best example is South Korea, where what they have done is a very, very effective strategy. They didn't actually have a national lockdown. They had a very targeted lockdown. And it was a combination because they were doing testing, they moved very quickly. But with contact tracing, they were able to very quickly um, trace people who had been in close proximity to those with COVID-19, ask them to stay at home, make sure that they stay at home. But what they did, and and what is often considered controversial in a more Western society, is they took really a high-octane blend of data. So they took your mobile location from the, the telecoms company, they took your credit card payment data, they took um, CCTV facial recognition, so all the cameras that could uh, could actually identify and recognize you on the streets. And out of that, they did a very, very good job of being able to track and trace. Now, it's, you know, it's scary. It's basically the big brother um, example here, and they're watching you. But the results clearly were they that you didn't have to do a national lockdown. The economy, um, as we've seen in Europe and the U.S., wasn't stopped. Their economy had decreased, but not to the point that we've seen elsewhere. So there's sort of really a trade-off here between between surveillance versus lockdown um, and and the impact on the economy. Mm-hmm. And just to, to to Tim, what Simon said, you know, using this combination of technologies and CCTV is one of those. And um, when I think about the UK, they have one of the highest penetrations of CCTV. So yes. is it think, is it, th- can we think that the UK would do this eventually? Or do you think this is just too much into the privacy um, that, that a Western, you know, somebody in Europe or the UK would do this? Well, that's a great question. I mean, someone described recently privacy as being sort of Europe's current religion, and it's something where we're all, you know, very concerned about being watched by by Big Brother. I think the key word you used there was eventually, and you could see a scenario where actually that trade-off that Simon talked about between is it possible to have a healthy population, a strong economy, and data privacy, and combine those three, is one of those really big complicated trade-offs that is not clear at the moment can be avoided. And you actually are, would actually ask people politically what they'd go for. They'd probably go for health and the economy over the privacy. Uh, but I think we're some way away from that. And the, the, thankfully, we've still got a strong, very strong legal structure and a very strong sort of political questioning that would stop that sort of thing happening. So that's the first big challenge. The second challenge, I think, though, is that just the practicalities of taking this, this often relatively aged infrastructure and relatively different sort of data points and data files and cr- pushing them together is not something which is something easily done over night. And so someone like China or South Korea with maybe more modern data infrastructure may be in a better better position to do that than somewhat older European countries. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about the practicality, um, I mean, there, and, and I think about AI and I think about, you know, what, what Simon's examples and surveillance that he just gave, but there's, there's tons of things going on out there. So what are some of the things going on in surveillance that we're not seeing? Maybe I'm not seeing sitting here in Germany or you're not seeing, um, well, obviously you are because you're in AI, but me as a citizen, is there other technologies that are being developed to help us with this? Yeah, I think that some of the other examples that we're seeing from Asia is is not only the contact tracing, but quite electronic fencing, um, which, again, if if you are supposed to be on lockdown or quarantined and you leave your home, then pretty quickly you're going to get a call. And it, the worst case, you're actually going to get police coming to you because it's very much enforcement of that quarantine. So that's there. The, the other examples we've seen is drones. Um, AI is very good at seeing and hearing, doing all the things that we consider intelligent. But the drones are actually going out there and they're able to spot, um, you know, well, first of all, they're able to spot crowds. 
um, which is not good for distancing. That secondly, they're able to spot those that aren't wearing masks. And then at quite some distance, they're also able to spot people with potentially a fever because they've got a raised um, temperature and it shows up as sort of in the thermal imaging. So it's again, it's looking down on people and using it to identify and sort of quarantine. Um, and you see that in, in China, um, there's, there's a great example of the police um, helmet where a police, police persons can actually see um, have superimposed like a heads-up display on a military uh, plane where they can actually have the outline of individuals and you'll see in red whether or not somebody has a raised temperature, i.e. fever, on their visor there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tim, any comments on that from you? I, mean, I think I'd always just treat these things with a certain level of scepticism because there's a whole bunch of ways in which those sort of helmet visors can be thrown off. But what we're saying, I think, is that this is being seen as potentially a sort of magic bullet technology. So it's being rolled out in the UAE at the moment, for example. And I think what we're saying is that actually it's the threat that that policeman could see you with a temperature that will force people to stay at home and behave better. So there's quite a lot of interesting psychology going on here, even if the technology sometimes is a bit over, over, over-egged. Uh Uh-huh. That's an interesting aspect there. Um, I'd like to come back to this, and I'd like to come back to privacy, but but, um, before the break, I'd just like to ask you about the the last area that you uh, recognized, um, and that's the masks, okay? And uh, there's, you know, so many, it took so many countries a long time to do that. Some are not doing it. I went out today in Germany. I saw people with with half masks on, um, although the Germans have been pretty good about this. Tim, what do you, you know, how do you see that? Do you think that this is an invasion into our privacy? Should we have to wear masks? What's your, why do some countries say yes and some countries say that you don't have to? Well, it's ironic. Mark's obviously one of the best ways to protect yourself against uh, uh, CCTV surveillance. So there is a, there's a trade-off both ways in terms of the terms of protection here. Though, interestingly, the Chinese are now working out ways where they can identify people from their eyes and the, and the wrinkles around their eyes as opposed to the full face full face on the mask. So it may not last forever. Look, I think masks are going to be probably going to emerge as one of the key things in driving this. Not so much because they protect me from other people, but because they protect other people from me. And if you get a society where people are buying into the idea that it's their responsibility to stop other people getting sick. That's one of the fastest ways in which actually you can begin to drive a better result across the entire community. In London here, you go back sort of two, three weeks and almost no one was wearing masks. I think now it's probably 20, 30% and rising fast. The biggest issue at the moment appears to be getting access to them. But I'm sure as the access grows, more and more people will take, take them up. Mm-hmm. And Simon, any comment on masks? <laughs> yeah, it's, there's some really interesting dimensions. Why have certain governments not sort of mandated it versus others? And that there's allegedly arguments in science as to whether or not they're effective. But, but I'd agree with Tim that it's, it's about us not sharing sharing with others. Um, but it's, it's interesting. You look, I think one of the big challenges for governments has actually been the supply chain in that they haven't been able to um, access and get and distribute masks in volume. Um, and, and Tim was talking about Taiwan earlier. One of the amazing things that they did there is within weeks, they actually were producing centralized production of masks, um, a two and a half million masks per day, which at the time is twice what they needed. But today, they basically are producing 10 million masks a day, which covers 40% of the population. So I think there's been a lot of supply chain um, issues in actually getting a lot of masks from government. And the other thing as well is with the centralization of purchasing, the Taiwanese government um, set a very low price. So it was 50 cents basically per mask and actually going down from there. And anybody who was seen as price gouging would get fines up to about $167,000. Wow. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> okay. We're going to take a short break. And I want to come back. When we, when we come back from the break, I'd like to go back into this privacy issue and, and, and the technology and the data that's being assembled now um, and how this might be changing some of our opinions. And for our listeners, we're talking with Simon Greenman and Tim Gordon, and they are co-founders of Best Practice AI, a London-based 
um, AI executive advisory company that helps companies accelerate their AI solutions. And if you'd like to reach out to learn more about their company, please go to www.bestpractice.ai. And you can reach Simon on Instagram under Simon Greenman, on Twitter under S. Greenman, and on Medium under A at Simon, at S. Greenman, and Tim under Medium at Tim23050, and on LinkedIn under Tim-Gordon-1351AA. And this broadcast is also brought to you by Cinda Academy, and you can learn more about the Cinda Academy at www.cinda.org. And with that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, Decide that you have something to say and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. Your leadership journey must be a continuous process of education and improvement. If you think you've learned all you need to know, think again. Find out the latest from contemporary authors on topics from character to values and everything in between. Discover insights into servant leader fundamentals along with your host, Tom Crea. Tune into Your Evolving Leadership Journey, Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's Business Channel. And today we're talking with Simon Greenman and Tim Gordon, and they're co-founders of Best Practice AI, a London-based AI executive advisory company that helps companies accelerate their AI solutions. And we've been talking about the development of AI um, in this current crisis, and it's you know, because we're seeing a lot of AI all over the place. But Simon, I'm going to, the first question I want to go, we kind of confuse AI with data because a, AI has data, but there's other data out there. How, you know, what what's AI being used and what's just assembling data being used yeah. in this and it's, it's a great question. It's often confused. But, but at the end of the day, um, AI runs on data, artificial intelligence, all its capabilities to, to hear, to see, to analyze, to think, to reason. It doesn't work without data. So it's somebody described or, um, data as the new oil in the 21st century. And I think that's the best way of, of, of thinking about it is that without great data, um, large data sets, then, then AI really just doesn't work. So data becomes really necessary to do AI effectively. And, and when we're talking about this data, people get scared about data. And Tim, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to come to you on this question. Is it because in this current situation, we're relating that to 
to governments when we're talking about the crisis, you know, tracing and following us, um, you know, what's really in the the government area and what's in the private sector? Well, I think it's a great question because it's it's one of those sort of big emerging questions as you sort of hear this stuff about sort of China using AI to sort of start a a race with America for for world domination using AI. Uh, And I think broadly there are three main sort of schools, if you like, of this at the moment. One, you've got China, which has got large numbers of people with uh, with large amounts of data being set, stored in relatively few big corporates uh, and sort of rules that basically allow people to use data far more aggressively. And China's effectively going to use AI with a big aim to sort of reshape their society using AI for, for ultimately relatively centralized control. You've got the US, which has obviously owns the world's leading data platforms, uh, though China's challenging that front now with Google and Facebook and so on, where, where you know, the, 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 the economic returns to Google on being a bit better at AI are absolutely massive and therefore that means they can afford to employ the best talent and the best people to really get to the right sort of place and then you've got Europe which is where we're very focused at the moment still on the privacy we talked about earlier so we've got rules like GDPR which basically help Europe try and drive a very strong regulatory framework on a global basis to support what they call ethical and sort of uh, privacy recognizing AI so those are three very different schools that are emerging actually indicating very deep underlying cultural differences Mm-hmm. And when you're as these as we go forward, Tim, how do you see these changing? Do you think that maybe Europe will will you know say okay, um, uh, you know, loosen up a little bit on GDPR because we need that information? Do you see any trends? Is there any push going in one way or another in Europe, Tim? I think the GDPR debate in Europe is still up in the air at the moment. And one of the interesting questions is, as we enter the, unfortunately, what's like to be quite a deep recession uh, as we the latter half of this year, whether the, the need for economic growth will begin to put more pressure on the sort of the privacy rules around GDPR. And we're seeing the debate we had earlier about, you know, do, do, does that, the need for health actually lead to us reducing the GDPR requirements? And that's one of the things which GDPR has got actually an opt-out clause, as I understand it, for health crises. So that sort of thing is going to start being explored and that may be the the thing that tips it over equally we may find the reverse which is there's a reaction against the sense of oh my gosh google amazon knows so much information about me apple knows so much about me i will reject that and actually a shift back to a desire for sort of gdpr quality i think that game is going to play out in the coming few years and it's going to help define the rest of the century Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and with that when you talk about google and and apple and everything simon you know i mean just, I answered a question online from the German government the other day on, on would I opt into a, um, uh, a tracing app, okay? Mm. And and I think I didn't see the end statistics, but it was it was definitely less less than half that said yes. So why why are we? I mean, Google knows everything. Facebook we put we put all our data in social media. Okay, people don't think twice about putting their data in social media, but they think three times about allowing a tracing app for COVID-19. Can you explain that behavior? Does it make sense? (laughs) To me, it doesn't make sense, but but you're (laughs) absolutely right. I mean, Google, Facebook, Apple, the big tech, the amount of data they're capturing on us is absolutely huge. They know where we're located. They know what we like. They know what we buy. I mean, so they have it all. But to your point, there seems to be reluctance to actually trust governments with the same level of data. Um, And the attitudes, though, vary somewhat. I, I mean, we did some surveys in uh, some informal surveys and in the u.s there's very much a strong mistrust of the federal government having their information um europe as tim says there's also very much a privacy privacy culture here um and then in asia there's more of a begrudging acceptance that the personal data can be used but you know there's some big problems here um you know we know that something like the contact tracing app is it can be such a powerful tool to help um, manage the spread and, and contain the spread. But at the same time, um, what we're seeing is most of these contact tracing apps that are being rolled out by governments are on a voluntary basis. And the question is, well, okay, if it's on a voluntary basis, can we get enough citizens to actually volunteer to make it useful? And the example is from Singapore, where they launched their 
traced together app uh, and what they saw and this is probably a few weeks old about a million of their five and a half million citizens signed up but the, mm. but what the singaporean government was saying is, is is we can't effectively do this track and tracing unless we have closer to um 60 65 70 percent of the population actually signing up to it so it, you know it's it's a really interesting question is why do we trust our data with with the big techs but not with our governments but if I can come in, Kimberly, it seems to me there's yeah. two simple differences here. One is when I'm signing up for a tracing app, I'm literally signing up to be traced. So the whole point of it is for I'm giving the data for someone to pursue me. Whereas if I sign up with Google or Facebook, I'm signing up for a really cool service and I happen to push some button that's page, you know, third stage of the process that says, by the way, we'll take your entire life and, and download it into our databases. So there's a, there's a difference in terms of what the human being is signing up for in the first place. And in the second place, the impact of it is going to be hugely different. So uh, if I sign, give all my data to Google or Facebook, I will get more and more better targeted ads, basically. So the, the impact on me is relatively negligible. If I give my data to the system and I do the wrong things, the police will knock on my door. So these are very different outcomes uh, for, for people to sign up to them. Mm, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean, when I'm looking at this whole picture, and I think I, I think the next question I have for each of you is, you know, this is all complicated. Okay, we're living in a complicated time. Um, what what do you each think? the trade-offs are going to be that we're going to have to make okay what's going to happen in in the next year are we going to have to make trade-offs are we going to have to give up some privacy to to be able to to uh, you know grow the economy um is and, and a very important question for me is is do you think it's going to happen faster in in authoritative governments and slower in liberal ones um how do you see this going forward is is there going to be a bigger difference between a liberal and authoritative government and i'll start with you tim okay a complicated answer take your time okay yeah i mean i think we should just be careful about sort of assuming it's all about data so if you look at the chinese lockdown the way in which they really got this going was if you got on a bus they took your temperature and if you had a temperature they sent you off to get tested and now that wasn't clever technology that was just some you know, some guard on the, on the bus or in the station or in the store who is there to check things. I think in that context, you're seeing, however, a beginning of a bigger debate in China now around the level of, of data which is being handed out to the government. And I think that's beginning to be a live issue. We shouldn't underrate that as being a potential for where things go. But broadly speaking, I, I do think it is likely that authoritative governments are going to be in a stronger position to just say, this is going to happen. Whereas liberal governments will spend more time debating it. And I think that's something we, we're seeing all the way through the, this, this process. Now, I think in the long term, Liberal governments will build a will build political buy-in and do things in a way that is supported by their citizenry, uh, and that, in the long term, gives you a stronger position. And if this plays out over many years, that will be a that will be an undeniable competitive advantage. Okay, and Simon? Yeah, I, I think we will see changes coming. I mean, at this point, for for the billions that have been locked down, there's there's a real sense of fatigue, and we're also understanding the impact on the economy, our mental health, our, our hospital systems. We've realized how devastating devastating it is, and we've taken draconian methods in lockdown. But I think, and we, we sort of asked the question informally in our surveys, if we ask citizens, look, if under certain conditions you were to give you mobile location data and share it with the government, and this could hasten the end of a pandemic, would you do it? And I think what we we hear citizens say, if they are confident, and this goes back to the question of trust, if they're confident their data is being used for very limited pass, um, um, li very limited use case for a limited time, that it's fair and there's a lot of transparency around its use and there's accountability by the government its use and there's oversight, i.e. good governance, and it, then citizens, I think, would be more willing to share their data having had the, the experience of this lockdown, if it were to mean that in the future, if there was another wave, which unfortunately there might be, or there might be further waves, we didn't have to go back into lockdown by virtue of sharing the data, then they might be more willing to accept that. Mm -hmm. And what do you think uh, the opportunity for AI is in this? And um, Simon, I'll stay with you. Yeah, I, I mean, AI has really had its had its had a great opportunity to be used during this period. I mean, the contact tracing, the the surveillance applications, but also AI is being used more broadly. I mean, it helped detect um, 
the original outbreak of COVID by, by picking up on chatter in social media in Wuhan. It's helping doctors diagnose the symptoms of this and do triage in hospitals. I mean, it's, it, in the pharmaceutical industry, it's being used to help develop therapeutics, and then robotics are being used in hospitals. So AI is really having an opportunity to, to help um, not only um, do tracking and surveillance, but also help manage and diagnose um, disease during this time. Mm-hmm. And Tim? I, mean, I think when we talk to our clients about how you can use AI, the way we describe it is, look, AI enables you to see patterns in data that you might not be able to see at scale. So that the, the, the real practical test we say is, look, if you had... 10,000, 100,000 interns who really weren't very smart, but what they could do is they could look at a screen and basically spot one thing, or they could look at, uh, they could listen to a, a text and spot one or two things in them. What would you do with that ability to scale things massively? If you think what that means for using AI in a, a health crisis where we need to look at ultimately millions of screens and sort of follow the, the passage of millions of citizens, you can begin to see how AI is something that can set, scale out massively to support what may need to be transformational effort by our societies mm-hmm. great well great last uh, great last words and thank you both for taking so much time to to be with us today um really interesting discussion i'm sure we can we could talk another half hour on this or even an hour okay and for our listeners we have been speaking with simon greenman and tim gordon co-founders of best practice ai a London-based AI executive advisory company that helps companies accelerate their AI solutions. Now, Simon has 20 years of experience leading digital transformations through technology, data science, and AI in the local media space. And Tim has over 20 years international leadership experience in growing businesses and digital transformations in media, financial services, consumer, and nonprofit and local search, as well as lead generation industries. And you can learn about Best Practice AI under www.bestpracticeai. And if you'd like to reach out to Simon, you can reach out to Simon under Simon Greenman on Instagram and on Twitter under S. Greenman and on Medium under at S. Greenman. And Tim under Medium, you can reach out to him at at Tim two three zero five zero and on linkedin he's under tim gordon one three five one aa so once again gentlemen thank you for taking the time to be with us thank you that's great and stay safe and for our listeners please remember to tune in every tuesday at 3 p.m pacific time and this broadcast is also brought to you by Cinda. Cinda is one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. Cinda holds digital conferences in Europe. And the Cinda Academy is available 24 hours a day under www.cinda.org. And in the Cinda Academy, you can also see complimentary webinars. And there is a webinar on the Cinda Academy by Simon Greenman on this subject. So go to www.cinda.org and look at the webinar and join us each week and if you miss us then don't forget you can download us on itunes google play stitcher and spotify and please send me information if you'd like to contact me if you have a wish on a future episode please contact me at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com or visit our website at leadershipbeyondborders.net. And with that, we wish everybody to stay safe and tune in next week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.